From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. I'm Lily Knepp, BPR's regional reporter. Today's episode is a special feature on rural retirees. Say that five times fast. Across western North Carolina, about 25% of the population is 65 and older. Before retirement, these members of our community worked at every job and lived everywhere. So who are the people who have decided to spend their retirement in the mountains, whether they moved here or were born here? Today, you're going to hear from some of those people. While many folks move to the mountains to retire, others are simply growing older in the place where they have deep roots. For Dave Waldrup, retirement has meant reflecting on his family history here in the mountains and pushing himself as a writer. Sitting in the old Jackson County Library meeting room, a small group of friends and family listens to the fiddle. This is the November launch of Dave Waldrup's book of puns called Roll Your Eyes Now. Folks, thank you all for coming out tonight. I'm Dave Waldrup. I think I know everybody, believe that or not. You might not think of puns as the highest brow of writing styles, but Waldrup says the book was a godsend in 2021. I've used these puns on a lot of people. I've worn my wife out, worn my son out, worn my daughter out, and I've worn a lot of people out with them. And uh, they have not completely discouraged me. I just keep making them up. But here we go. This is the first one. This is kind of like you were in the second grade, and I show you the book and all that good stuff, and then I tell you, why did the little boy with a bad cold ask his daddy to build a barn? Does anybody know the answer to that? I mean, you don't have to. This is, it's not required. Well, he had heard that sometimes when you get a cold, you'll get a little horse. What eels make the best students? Mores. How can you tell that cowboys think they can control the weather? They spend a lot of time holding on to reins. This one says, my friend is a buccaneer. I don't know if you can see it, but he's got the price tags in his ears there, a dollar per ear, so he's a buccaneer. The fiddle that you heard at the start of this piece was Alma Russ. Russ is a local musician and also the illustrator of this book. You want to run into Dave, and when you run into him, it's like a sight to behold. It's like, (laughs) yes, Dave Waldrop. Um, And I don't know, he's just one of my favorites, and I'm really thankful that I got to work with him, and I think... I think when you're a creative individual and you have a project, you know, we all have different brains in our noggins. When you're creative and you're, like, imagining your project, you imagine it probably a certain way. You didn't know if I was going to see it the same way, and I I didn't, you know. Um, But I just really feel honored that you entrusted me with your your idea. It honestly got me through COVID a little bit. I'd just be at home working on these little things, and it was was a lot of fun, and I've never gotten to do that before. Here's how Waldrop describes their relationship. Let, look, I'll tell you a little bit about how Alma and I work together. Like I told you, I've been dealing with these puns for years, and some people have actually enjoyed them. Don't get me wrong. Some have rolled their eyes a lot, but some have sworn up and down that they enjoyed them. And uh, I showed Alma a few of them a few years back, and she said that, that she could illustrate them. That, that apparently, she could see what I said. And so she did. A little bit on a sad note, I almost showed up ready to go with this not long after my daughter was killed in a car wreck. Alma doing that has really done wonders for me 
to keep me from looking at a dark side of life and allow me to, to find the sunny side and to see something that looks like it's turned into some humor for people, and I'm proud of that. Waldrup's daughter, Erica, passed away unexpectedly in January 2021 in a car accident. Waldrup says when he was younger, he wouldn't have talked about what was happening in his home life. That's one of the reasons he has so many creative outlets now. I don't want it bottled up in me. I'm better off. And it's interesting that I am that way because for all of my school years, I never talked with anybody about anything. Never talked with my brothers and sisters. Never talked with people at school. This stuff was bottled up in me for, you know, 30-some years, really. And uh, it... It dammed up, I guess, and had to burst sometime, so I talk about things that bother me. And uh, that's, Erica's death has been a really hard thing because it just, gosh, here COVID had put us all in a box, in our own little separate boxes, and we couldn't associate much. But I tried to get over and be around her for years. I mowed her lawn, so I, I'd, I'd be over there pretty often. And then... Uh, Boom, Friday night, January 29th, we got the word. And uh, it's a hard thing to, you just never think of something like that happening, but it it happens. I, I had her for 48 years, and uh, I've got her granddaughter now. As another part of his healing process, Waldrop has been writing a history of his family. That's what James Baldwin said is, you know, you have, you have to know where you came from. And that's what I've tried to present so that my brothers and sisters can see it. And then people who follow me can look at this and say, because everybody gets a copy of this. Everybody in my family has got a copy of it. And they can see that I have redeemed them in the eyes of Jackson County. There are people who can live a life and not talk about much. They don't seem to have to. They process it somehow or other, and they wind up successful. And then there are those who have to talk about what goes on around them. I'm one of those who kind of has to talk about what goes on around me. So I took it upon myself to write about what we experienced as kids and uh, how my daddy separated us from the community and from each other within the family. Waldrop has also written extensively about his relationship with his father, who was an alcoholic and died of liver cirrhosis in 1966. I'm not a drinking man, but I grew up around drinking thinking. In my lifetime, I've had to break the, the type of thinking in my mind that I saw going on around me. Because my mother was a very powerful person in some ways, but my daddy was the controlling person in our family, so that's the stuff that I imitated. Uh, Counting Crows said all monkeys do what they see. And if you don't stop yourself from doing it, then you'll do it, because that's what you've seen. This is one of many books that he's written, as well as a number of songs. He was able to take his writing to the next level after he retired in 2002 at 59 years old. One song celebrates his grandfather's work with the WPA the Works Progress Administration, which was part of the New Deal in 1938. The program built schools, roads, and dams in western North Carolina, some of which are still in use today. Granddaddy worked on the WPA 
37 and 38 You know he never got rich But he earned his way Cause Mr. Roosevelt The song celebrates the rich history of Western North Carolina while also pointing to the complex relationship between the federal government and the region. Big Dog moved his business offshore So he won't have to pay his taxes no more Small Dog sniffs around trying to find a ball Still the IRS leave them alone Find a bone, leave the small dog alone, make the big dog moan. Waldrop was born at the mouth of Kitchens Branch in Jackson County. And I was born at home in the middle, really in the middle of World War II. And I think people call me a, a boomer. That, I believe that's a, the term that, uh, that is given to us. He joined the Navy after high school because he said it seemed like a better option than the local paper mill. After the Navy, he went to college on the GI Bill to get a bachelor's degree in psychology with the focus in speech and hearing. He says that the fact that his mother was in college when he got out of the Navy is what pushed him to go. And that inspired me a lot to think that somebody my mother's age, you know, early 50s, had gone back to school and gone to college. That relationship and admiration for his mother inspired a book of poetry in which he published eight of his mother's poems. Her name was Lily Clayton Waldrop Panel. In the book, he explains that she got a degree at Western Carolina University after his father's death to become a kindergarten teacher. Then after several years, she went back to school to become a licensed nurse. She then worked at Harris Regional Hospital for the next 20 years. She passed away in 2001. One of her poems reads, One day I asked for patience, and much to my surprise, the next thing I knew, tears had filled my eyes. For I had failed my test, and everything went wrong. Just about now I noticed, patience came along. Ultimately, Waldrop used his degree to become a counselor for more than 30 years. He also coached football, basketball, baseball, and softball before serving as an athletic director and bus driver at an elementary school in Jackson County. I wanted perfect plays when I first started coaching, and I finally got thinking, man, what's, what you want perfect in football is to cross that goal line pretty often <laughs> using using the system that you have within the game to get there. You know, passing, throwing, kicking, deception, honesty, and all that stuff. And uh, I became much more accepting of plays that broke down. And that's where I said, okay, let's, we got another one coming. Let's, let's get ready and do this one. And that's the way I tried to treat kids when I was at Colorway is, okay, you made, a, you made a big mistake here, but let's go on. Let's find something else. Beyond coaching, writing and storytelling have always been a part of Waldrop's life. I became a verbal person, a language type learner and I may have written in my mind for years but I didn't have the I really didn't have the courage the confidence to begin writing and showing stuff that I had written to anybody out in the public after I quit coaching and retired I said I'll just go ahead and do some writing and people can agree with me or disagree or not like or or whatever and that's the I guess that's the life that a writer lives is that you you're thinking 
from your own experience and what you're seeing around you and you have to you, you put it out there and it gets tramped on or somebody says i like this picks it up as a flower in total dave has written more than five books including one about the silva team that made it to the 1961 senior league world series even before 61 these are old people who almost made it in the pros and quite a few people from around here have almost made it this is athletic country a lot of people don't realize it but it is one piece of writing that he put to music became a part of public record in 2014. i wrote this song and performed it one night at city lights that's in this lady really liked it and she got after me she said, I want you to come to a commissioner's meeting and perform this song. It's 645 high up on Shook Cove Road. A D8 bulldozer waits in the early morning fog for his operator. The bulldozer says, Mr. Operator, Mr. Operator, tell him we ain't gonna doze today. Mr. Operator, Mr. Operator, too much of these mountains already washed away. I went to a commissioner's meeting and performed this a cappella, and the, the crowd just went wild. After the meeting, Waldrop was so touched by the speeches of the presenters that he collected them together into a book. He hopes that one day these can be useful. Another way that Waldrop collects stories is through a special place on his property called the Gazebo of Stars. So up here... These stars are people who have been on my property and done something outstanding, or they're a family member. I have a genealogy up here. My, uh, my wife's people and my people, down to our children. They're all up here in a star. No two stars are alike because that's the way life is. I'll just give you an example here. Henry Kiefer was my plumber when we built this house in 77. We've had no plumbing problems. So to me, he's a star. You know, all the different mediums you've showed me today, you know, it's the stars and your songs and poems and histories. How do you think about the way that you translate your ideas into these different mediums? And how do you think about the fact that I think some people, you know, they take certain types of written words more seriously than puns, and I don't feel like you do that. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to answer what, what you're asking and what you're looking at, but what it boils down to is songs save my life. I found truths in songs that are hard to refute. I memorize hundreds of songs, by the way, and you, you probably collect, you probably know that. And that's what gives me the basis, really, for a lot of my writing, is a line that, that somebody has said that I think is powerful. Music for Waldrop is really where the truth lies. Perhaps that's why he feels like music is one of the greatest gifts that Appalachia has given the world. I consider myself an Appalachian. I was born here, and I, I don't know how much the term Appalachia has changed since I was a kid. I think people were really, I felt this. I felt like people looked down on mountain kids when I was growing up. I even felt like sometimes it, you could feel it in a school. And some, a lot of it was uh, socioeconomic. But, and so since I was on the low, 
low part of the socio socioeconomic thing. I felt it periodically. But today, I think people are beginning to realize from a cultural standpoint, Appalachians have made tremendous contributions to American life. And one of the ways they've done it is through music. Here's what Waldrop feels is one of his best songs, called Sweet Country Music with Robert Carter. Sweet country music, Lord, it runs through my brain. Sweet country music, let it run in my vein. Sweet country music, man, it's so For 19 years that I've been retired, I didn't set out to do all of these things at one time. I set out to do them one at a time. And there, none of it's made me all that famous yet, and, and it may never make me famous except from the shoulders up. But it's it's been good for me. Sometimes I like to prove all good. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Porch. I'm Lily Knapp with BPR News. Sarah Jane Melton is the director of the Area Agency on Aging for the six westernmost counties, Cherokee, Clay, Graham, Haywood, Jackson, Macon, and Swain, as well as the eastern band of Cherokee. The organization provides resources for retired people across the region. Melton shared just how many retirees there are in the region and who they are. About five or six years ago, it was just Clay, Macon, and Jackson. But now it's everybody um, between 30 and 35 percent over the age of 65 within the region. And they outnumber the uh, population zero to, to 20 or 25 uh, that that percentage is in the 20s. So who are these people? Are they people who moved here or are they mainly um, folks who have been living here and haven't left? Um, how do you think about uh, who these people are? Well, I think it's a mixture, Lily. Um, there are, we certainly have um, some folks who have been here all their lives and have just aged as we all will. And then we also have some that are um, here part of the year and in other parts of the United States for half the year. And then we have some that have moved in because our area is so gorgeous and beautiful. And, uh, you know, we that's why we live here. We love it, too. So so we have a smattering of all, all three of those. Many of those people left messages and comments for BPR about their retirement story. Let's meet some of the people who live here. Young hearts. Never at rest Getting older And facing tests Time will not let us pause My name's Patty M. And I live in Nebo, North Carolina. I spent most of my career in drug and medical product regulatory affairs. We were looking for a place where we could get away from harsh winters up in the northeast. The Asheville area looked perfect, and we found some land to buy, we built a house, and we moved here in 2011. I have been a musician since I was about eight years old. I had always thought about once I retire, I would just love to come back 
to music and uh, do that as, as something entirely different from my uh, actual career. And when I came down here, I knew there would be a lot of bluegrass music, and that certainly is the case, and I love bluegrass, but I really was surprised at the variety of other music that's here in the Asheville area. So I, I was really happy uh, when I was able to connect with some other local musicians here. Sometimes when I visualized it, I, I was thinking that my career was like the superhighway, and I was just on it, on it, on it. But running along that superhighway was a small two-lane country road that was music, that was always, always, was always sort of following me along that road. And every now and then I would reach over and touch it, but I could never really get jump off that exit and, and get onto that small road until I retired. Yeah, I'm talking about retiring in western North Carolina. 20 years ago, it might have been okay. Today, it's horrible. Everybody and their dog has come here. So it's going to look like California for too long. No water. Mountains will burn up. And uh, everybody's bringing their own crap that they left. They want them to come here and enjoy it, but they don't do that. They come here and bring their own stuff they're running from, whether it's governmental or, or whatnot. They can't leave it alone. So, yeah, I wouldn't advise it. It's probably, probably better to go to Maine or uh, Alaska because uh, definitely uh, not the same here. Hi, this is Carol Hogue. We moved to Knoxville in June of 1976, immediately after marrying and graduating from William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. Lynn, my husband, began graduate school at University of Tennessee that summer, and we began a lifelong love affair with the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and the Blue Ridge Parkway. We hiked and camped in many parts of the park and took our brand-new 1967 red VW Bug on its inaugural journey camping along the length of the parkway. We moved to Atlanta in 1982, where Lynn was a founding member of the Georgia State University College of Law, and I worked for 10 years at the Centers for Disease Control before returning to academia in 1992 at the newly established Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. We were delighted to discover that we could drive to the Smokies in three hours. While continuing our full-time work in Atlanta, we bought a lot in Swain County that has a beautiful view of Cleveland's Dome in a community that values nature's beauty all around us. Our house was completed in 2007, and every weekend possible, we drove a car, sometimes our old bug, from Atlanta to our new home. After a few months of living in our Swain County garage, the old bug told us that it was about time to find a new family. So we consigned it to a classic car company in Atlanta. Finally, we sold our Atlanta house and moved here permanently in 2018 after Lynn had retired for the second time from the GSU College of Law, and I was in the process of reducing my time at Emory, retiring fully in 2019. Now we can walk out our door to hike and we can drive our new red VWID4 all-electric car on the Blue Ridge Parkway. What a wonderful life. This is Ann Hartzog Hall. Everybody knows me as Annie Hall. I'm a psychotherapist, retired. I live at Givens Highland Farms in Black Mountain. And I've always loved the mountains and always felt drawn to them. And when my ex-husband wanted to move 
to Davidson, North Carolina, and we had bought a house. And I said, I cannot move to Davidson. I have to go up the mountains. I've been coming up here since I was a little, little girl where my father loved these mountains and had relatives in Asheville. So I wound up building, dreaming and building a dream house in Black Mountain. And the craziest thing in the world is my son just bought back that house. So it's a spiritual place, these mountains. And I had a dream group up here as a psychotherapist and have studied dreams together with groups and just have pursued many spiritual growing and deepening pursuits. And I wouldn't live anywhere in the world but these mountains. My name is Cliff Lively, and I live on Elk Mountain Scenic Highway, which is on the north side of Asheville. I was in the uh, wildland fire management um, field. I worked for the U.S. Forest Service in California for about 25 years and worked for 12 years as the fire chief for the uh, mid-Atlantic states and retired in 2016. The family property and home here on Elk Mountain has uh, always been of an interest to me, and when I had the opportunity to move here, that was my retirement plan. I've had connections here for my whole life. My family has been here for almost 100 years. My great-grandfather, an architect working in Florida in the late 1800s through the 1940s, Francis Joseph Kennard, began buying property on Elk Mountain Scenic Highway around 1925 with the plan to open a summer inn here where they would spend their summers and have another business. The inn was known as Kenhurst Lodge and Tea House and opened in 1935. It was run by my family until the mid-1960s. The inn here was not quite as uh, posh as the Grove Park, but it was at about the same period of time. And to the point that I've even, uh, I've, some of the archive has even been digitized and put into a collection down at the North Carolina room at the Pax Library. So I worked with them to document some of the things going on here. My wife and I and the dog made the move from Pennsylvania to Kenhurst Tea House in the summer of 2017. As my wife says, when someone offers you a house, you take it. Well, a couple of years ago, I, I went through my great-grandfather's archives here, sitting in his office room, um, looking through uh, letters that he wrote and, and uh, documentation from his time here, and then my grandmother, and my father and mother, and uh, all that is just, you're just steeped in history uh, of the place, and, and uh, um, you know, to the point when I'm doing improvement projects on the house here, you know, there's there's uh, signs lettered in my grand, great-grandfather's hand, there's, you know, parts and pieces of the house that you know that he touched that, and I'm I'm touching it again. It's just it's an incredible feeling for me. Um, for me, I found um, finding you know having a plan. What are you going to do when you retire? You know, have a plan. And you know, besides just sit around and not go to work, 
I get up every day with the thought of, all right, what what am I going to tackle today? What project am I going to work on? What what uh, what do I have on the agenda? And and uh, I guess I'd say don't turn on the TV during the day. Um, find something to do. Hi, my name is Jessica Benny, and I just moved here to Swannanoa, North Carolina, and I semi-retired. However, once I got here, I realized the cost of living was pretty high here, so I made a conscious decision to go to work, but I'm also in school at a seminary out of Ohio, so I plan on going into pastoralship and work part-time as a chaplain. Hello, this is Brother Darrow out in Madison County. I moved here 10 years ago. Uh, I was living up in Maine in that horrible winter of 2010 and 11, and I'm a Yankee, and uh, I was up in Maine in an old farmhouse up in the woods with snowshoes and a chainsaw. I was trying to stay warm, and you couldn't throw the snow any higher, and that did it for me, and I said, I'm going south. And as soon as I saw the Blue Ridge Mountains, I said yes. And so I now have one acre down here in Madison County, and it's so beautiful here. I've lived all over this country, north, west, south, west, northeast. Now I'm in the southeast and probably one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And I really feel the grace of God that I live here now. Our only problem is too many people are moving here. So that's my comment, and uh, let's just uh, bear with all the people that are coming in. Peace. Some people who recently retired sent questions about local resources. Sarah Jane Melton shared that the Area Agency on Aging can help retirees connect with a number of resources from transportation, hiring, home aids, and delivering meals to respite grants for family caregivers, legal advice, and more. Here's Melton to explain more of the services that are available for local retirees. We've talked in the last years, you're like, we need more funding, we need more funding. And, and now there is a big chunk of funding coming down the pipe. We've got the ARPA funding and the CARES Act funding. And I know you guys have some projects that you're working on for that, um, if you want to share. Yeah, absolutely. We, we are going to have conversations about mental health. Um, substance abuse, opioid abuse. I know some folks have a hard time with the realization that older adults also have those issues. That is not an age issue. That is a human issue. And, you know, we're going to we're gonna step into that and, and try and work on that and make things better. We're also going to expand our consumer-directed service, which is where someone could hire um, an aide to provide service to them. We already have that service in three of our counties, but we're hoping to expand it to the other four. It's a really good consumer-directed service, if you will. Folks can um, take charge of, the, of what they need and tell us what they need. And so we're, we're hoping to expand that. Um, we are also in conversations, um, myself and Jeannie Matthews, uh, we've worked here at the Area Agency on Aging for about 25 years together. And we were brought a concept of a mobile resource van to our attention over 10 years ago. And we love that idea. Um, you know, as well as I do, we have within our county so many small communities and fire departments and rescue squads that are vitally important to those communities. 
and they are, for the most part, in the outlying areas of our county. Uh, and so having a mobile resource van that could potentially have a community paramedic on it, could potentially have a Medicaid DSS worker that could do a Medicaid application in the field, a, a public health nurse, uh, information and assistance about all the programs that we have, food, food boxes, refrigeration, liquid supplements, um, maybe even a portable lab on the, on the van are, are concepts that are um, growing legs and feet and arms, if you will. At this point, we have never gotten traction from a funding partner to be able to provide that, to even be able to think about um, getting the van and, and talking to counties about it. But we are in those processes now. We are in those conversations with several of our counties. Um, we do have a potential funding partner, um, and it would not be age-specific. It would cross the age spectrum. I don't, uh, you know, I don't want it to be specific for older adults. It needs to meet the need of whatever um, comes up on that particular day. So the idea is that we would have a consistent schedule, and um, you know, everyone in that community, whatever community was was on the schedule for Tuesday afternoon um, of any given day, would the van would be at the community center, at the volunteer fire department, at the at the hub of, of that community, and those resources would be available at that time. So that, that's a dream that we have. We will continue pushing through and, and see how it manifests. The music you heard at the top of this section was Patty M's Growing Old from her album, All the Eggs I've Beaten. Thanks for sharing your story and music with us, Patty. You're listening to The Porch, I'm Lily Knapp with Blue Ridge Public Radio. Thanks to everyone who called in to share their stories about being retired in the mountains. You can leave us a message anytime about any of your story ideas at 828-253-6700 or send us an email at voices at bpr.org. That's voices at bpr.org. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Porch. I'm Lily Knapp with BPR News. One unlikely retiree in Franklin is Selma Sparks. She moved to the mountains from Brooklyn for peace, quality of life, and the beautiful blue skies. Sparks has been a lifelong civil rights activist and journalist. She worked in Harlem during the 1960s at prominent black rights and left-wing papers, even interviewing Malcolm X in 1964. Born in 1931, she says that her parents taught her about history when she was growing up in New York. I was fortunate. As a child, I had parents who knew their history and taught me my history. They were high school graduates at a time that it was not usual, so they had an education. So I grew up differently from most. I grew up knowing and being proud of my African heritage. So I guess by the time I got in my 20s, I was you know, out there making speeches and doing things like that. And um, I spent, I guess, majority of my adult life out there 
and feeling very strongly, and I, to this day, I feel very strongly. When she says out making speeches, she means publicly speaking about human rights, such as one specific day at the Hotel Teresa in Harlem when Sparks was in her 30s. At the time, the Hotel Teresa was a hub of black culture. Sparks says that's because it was the only hotel where black people could stay. Now it's a national historic place. We were doing a lot of things outside of the Teresa Hotel. This is where a lot of the public speaking took place. People gathered. And this was not a civil rights. This was, um, I was speaking in favor of Fidel Castro. And as a result, we walked down to the United Nations, where I also spoke about it. That's right. She said Fidel Castro. During this time period, Castro was seen by some as a voice for the people rising up against the military dictatorship of Cuban President Fulgencio Batista. I've never let anybody think that I was not pro-Fidel. Hey, he made some mistakes, and I say, look, what president have we ever had who didn't? And um, I learned things about Cuba, and I fight with some of the Cuban people that I've met since I've been here. And I tell them, uh-uh, the people who, the guy who was running Cuba that day didn't do anything for the people. And Fidel came along, and because he made, he made some mistakes going with Russia, and stuff, but that was, that was a whole other story. But um, I got there, and I was treated beautifully. Everybody loved me. In the 1960s, parts of the civil rights movement were looking internationally for allies against racism. This included Cuba and Africa as part of the Pan-African movement. Sparks traveled to Cuba for her work, but says she wasn't a communist. No, I was never a member of any party, no. I know when I first um, started to vote, I was independent, and then I finally, you know, became re-registered as a Democrat. But, um, no, I would say I was just, um, I was a black woman who was speaking out. Sparks also traveled to Ghana to the World Without the Bomb conference in 1962. At the time, she was writing for Liberator magazine. When I went to Africa, when I went to, to Africa, on the way there, oh, I had some beautiful things going on. And there was wonderful, and Ghana is magnificent. And they told me I was theirs. I was theirs. Wherever I've gone, it's been like, hey, I'm here as a guest. Of course, when I went to Ghana, no, I'm home. Liberator Magazine was a black rights magazine published from 1961 to 1971. Sparks Byline is listed on the advisory board alongside prominent people like author James Baldwin, actor Ozzie Davis, and others. The Liberator Magazines have been archived online. Here, Sparks sees copies printed from 1962. Oh, yes. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I got a chance to meet a a lot of the folks that I never would have met. One cover features James Baldwin with one of Sparks' stories about the poor labor practices in New York City's garment district, titled Dubinsky's Plantation. Sparks says she remembers working with him when she was trying to use an early computer. We met, you know, every now and then when he came in. He wasn't a big, big-time 
artist yet. Yeah. And a couple of the other guys who became big weren't at the t- weren't either. And we were just kind of, you know. I was someone they could laugh with. They tried to get me to use the computer. Back then, the computer, the, the mouse was a shaky thing. And I got sick. I said, no, no. <laughs> and they laughed at me. Oh, they, they had a good time laughing at me. They had a great time. <laughs> and they said, okay, use the typewriter. You know, that was it. <laughs> One of the most famous leaders of the civil rights era that Sparks interviewed was Malcolm X. At the time, in 1964, she was writing for The Challenge, the revolutionary communist newspaper, and Malcolm X had just left the Nation of Islam. When Sparks spoke with Malcolm, he had just founded the Organization for Afro-American Unity. This group was designed to bring together black Americans outside of the Muslim faith. When my publisher told me that Malcolm X had told them that if they wanted an interview, with him, I had to do it. And at that point I said, yeah, what does he know about me? I was kind of stunned. I do hey, hey, hey. And I didn't want to do it. And that was the most magnificent experience I ever had. Because at that time I was not pro-Malcolm in a lot of ways. And sitting there, this is the worst piece of writing I ever did. I forgot to turn on my recorder and there were things that I should have asked him that I just got so involved with listening to him that I didn't. But this to me, this was a man who was, this was after his trip to Mecca. And this made a difference. This changed him and made him, I guess that's why they had to kill him. Here's a section of the interview as read by BPR staff. Do you feel the black man in America is potentially revolutionary? The black man in America is the only one who is caught enough hell whose condition is so deplorable that he may be forced into a revolution, not by his own design, but out of frustration. The civil rights struggle has been referred to as the black revolution. Do you feel this is true? And do you think that the present leaders are revolutionary? I've never heard of a nonviolent revolution because power only yields in the face of power. We need leaders who are responsible to black people, and such leadership will not tell black people how to turn the other cheek, but will allow the Afro-American to react as a human being. The Negro will never be equal until he can do to others what they do to him. Malcolm admitted to being deliberately vague during the interview. If you spell things out, people will use what you say against you. Many questions were left unanswered, but most of these will have to be answered by deeds, not words. Words do not make a leader, but rather the deeds he performs, the path on which he leads the people. If the actions are sincere and meaningful, the people will follow. To quote Malcolm, if you want to know where we will lead the people, watch us. Further, anything which does not move quickly will fall. The climate is right, the soil is fertile, and the time is now. Sparks says that she's been told she was the only woman journalist to interview Malcolm X. For me, this was the most magnificent experience I ever had. And I sat there just listening and forgetting to ask questions because I just, (laughs) I couldn't do anything but listen to him. And it, it was just wonderful. And when I wrote, I told him, gee, I don't think we can use this. This just isn't, this just wasn't, this is no good. And, you know, those, you still have to show the person 
you're doing the has to see it, has to approve it. And I said, well, how can he approve this thing? This just shouldn't be. He approved it. It got printed. I was embarrassed. I didn't want my name on it because I said, this is just not. But he approved it, and a friend of mine who was very close to him told me later, no, Malcolm had read what you had written. He'd heard you speak. And that's why he wanted you to do it. He trusted you. And I said, yeah, but it was such a lousy job done. He said, well, he felt you were the one to do it. And that made me feel very good because, like I said, I sat and I listened to this man. This man who believed in freedom, who believed in mankind, who, oh, I mean, even to this day, tears come to my eyes just, just thinking about him. And I wrote the farewell to him, and I wrote it in the Malcolm in the um, Muslim newspaper. They asked me, and I did it because I felt very strongly about him. Malcolm was assassinated in 1965 in Harlem. The case was reopened in 2021 after researchers in the Netflix documentary series Who Killed Malcolm X shared declassified FBI files. Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson were both exonerated in 2021. Johnson died in 2009. Sparks still remembers the night she heard Malcolm had been killed at the Audubon Ballroom. The night Malcolm was killed, I was supposed to be there. And my daughter carried on in such a way that I couldn't go, couldn't go to the meeting. And it came on the radio and my mother said, called me. And I just went to pieces. And she said, I'm so glad you weren't there because I have a feeling that you would not have, you might not have survived that one. But um, I learned a lot just listening to him. Sparks also worked with A. Philip Randolph, who directed the 1963 March on Washington, famous for Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And I didn't go on the march to Washington with King and the rest because they told me no. My friend said no. Because knowing me, they realized that if a white cop put his hands on me, he was going to have to, I was going to get killed because I was not going to tolerate it. And I understood that. And I said, yeah, you're right. I mean, I wasn't a person of violence, but I also was not a person who was used to anybody disrespecting me in any way. Sparks also had many other jobs in her life. She says she worked in criminal court at the same time as the famous black judge, Judge Turnham Loose Bruce Wright. She also worked with New York Unions and at Bloomingdale's. And, you know, all of this made me the kind of person I became. All of this went into making me the unionism, the workers, you know, hey, the whole thing. This was all part of it. This was all part of it. I worked for the union. I worked in a mental hospital. Hey, I worked in, I worked in Bloomingdale's furniture department, and my boss put me outside to deal with all the idiots who came in with complaints. Because he said, hey, I hear the way you deal with folks on the phone. Come on, put you out there. And the buyers loved me so. She retired from a job with New York State as a compensation claims investigator at age 65. My birthday came up. I said goodbye. I'm leaving. 
Sparks moved to Franklin around 2006 after a friend convinced her. I had a buddy who was manager of the health food store that I had shopped in for years. And we got to be friends. And his father lived here and he bought a house here. And I came down to visit with him a couple of times. I said, oh yeah, it's beautiful, but I could never live here. I mean, you know, small town though. And then he decided he was going to move here permanently. And one night he spent two hours on the telephone talking to me. And finally I said, yes. My daughter was very upset. Sparks had never lived in the South at all before moving to Franklin. She says there were some things that she had to get used to. For example, sales tax isn't applied to groceries in New York State. When I came here in Franklin and found out they were charging tax on food, I went berserk. And a friend of mine said, well, we always have. And I said, but how? Why? So I, I said, look, you can't change it. The people have allowed it. Hey, that's their thing. Another thing that surprised her when she moved was attending the Asheville Barack Obama rally around that time. Like I went to when Obama was running the first time and he was speaking in Asheville. And I went and I was amazed at the number of young people. See, I've, I'd never been South. This was my first trip. All I did was read, I read about the South. And I decided I was going to try it. I was going to do it. I was never afraid to go any place. I'm going. Boop. That's how I got here. But um, I was so amazed at the number of young people. And these were young white people who were there. And I started asking them questions. You know, how come? And I, I wrote an article. And it was in Make, um, Make on Counting News. I think it was in there. Sparks has still been active in local politics but says she relaxes for the most part. The Jackson County NAACP recognized her life of civil rights work with an award in November 2021. Sparks reads the award. The Jackson County Branch 54AB of the NAACP honors Selma Sparks. She serves us as a mentor and historian. She is a storyteller of truths we need to hear. She embodies courage, persistence, and an unwillingness to accept the unacceptable. Like Harriet Tubman, Selma Sparks moves us forward. And I still get the tears. November 6, 2021. Her life experiences have cemented her passion for human rights in current issues from COVID-19 to the January 6th insurrection. I grew up in New York when you couldn't go in certain restaurants. When you couldn't go in the hotels because no matter how much money you had, you were black, you could, you could work there, but that you couldn't, you couldn't go in there and stay in there. You couldn't eat in that restaurant. You know. So I grew up with all of this, so I know what it's about. Let's go way back to the history. How did it start? I said only, your, only property owners could vote. White prop, male property owners were the only ones who could vote. They were the only ones who had anything to say. This wasn't a democracy. But, okay, they're saying democracy, but they don't believe in it. That's not what they want. They want an autocracy. And this is scary. And people need to stop and think about this. And when you see the number of Americans who are out there, when you look at those people who are out there on January 6th, now this isn't something that you saw 
you know, later, years later, the whole world saw this happening. When it was happening, they saw it, they heard it. And then they're going to come and deny that it was so? Uh-uh. No, this kind of, this country was born into racism. And until the people recognize that and start dealing with that, it's not going to change. And we're in trouble. We're in serious trouble now. And I'm glad I'm, 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 glad I'm on my way out. Because this is going to be a horrible thing to see. It's bad enough now. Her greatest hope is in young people in the future. She wants them to learn all they can about history. You know, I'm just an ordinary person who got a good education, who did the reading because I was concerned. I was interested in the world. I was interested in people. And I did the reading. I read the books. I went and I looked. I lived in the library. I was an only child. And, hey, I didn't have very much else to do. <laughs> and I learned these things, and I feel them so strongly. And I get stronger the older I grow. And I'm now 90, and I'm looking at all of this, and I'm saying, how? Huh. I don't, I don't have any answers. The only answers I have are, we've got to face the facts. We've got to t face the reality. And if we don't do that, we're finished. Overall, Spark says all of the history that she's been a part of was just a part of her life. I don't feel anything. Uh, it, it, it was just part of, and it never, I don't know, like when I found out that they had the copy of the interview with Malcolm in the Schomburg Library. You know, I said, oh? And my son said, Ma, you're part of history. And then I find out that Liberator, that also their things were given also to the Schomburg. And I'm saying, you know, but it didn't, I didn't do any of these things. I wasn't doing them, I certainly wasn't doing them for money because I wasn't making money. I wasn't doing them for fame or anything. I was doing them because these are things I believed in. And it just never, I just never, you know, and my son says, but Ma, you know, this is why we tell you there are things that your children don't even know about your life that you should write. And I say, eh, it was, I never thought of it in that way. I'm Lily Knepp with BPR News. Thanks so much for being with us today and for everyone who called in and shared their comments about retirement. There was a lot to unpack in this episode about what it means to be retired in the mountains, and there's definitely a lot more to talk about. Let us know your ideas, and we'll see if this is something we can revisit again as we think about some of the challenges about being retired here in the mountains. You can call us anytime at 828-253-6700 to leave a voicemail or email us at voices at bpr.org. 
We love to hear story ideas and just things that you're noticing in the community. The phone number to reach us at is 828-253-6700 or send us an email at voices at bpr.org. That's voices at bpr.org. A special thanks to Abby Bishop and Mike Martinez for their voiceover work on this episode. And thank you to the BPR News team for all of your help talking through the ideas for this episode, listening to all of our voicemails, and editing this episode. Thanks again. I'm Lily Knapp with BPR News. This has been The Porch.